Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. <clears throat> the next day, the crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. <clears throat> Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, sorry, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, well, I'd like to just look at the passage in Zechariah that is quoted in the Gospels on Palm Sunday. From, uh, so the passage is Zechariah 9, and particularly verses 9 to 17. Now, the 6th century BC was a time of great turmoil and change. Uh, battling empires, tyrannical rulers, warfare and invading armies. People were killed or were carried off as prisoners. Um, and the world could be a pretty scary place for ordinary people. When Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, when his ministry began, the Israelites had been living away in exile for years having been forced from their homes by the Babylonians. But the Babylonian Empire had now been overcome by the Persian Empire, and the Persians allowed them to start returning home. Now, they were still not free in the full sense of that word, of course, um, and life was still very unpredictable. But after the trauma of the past years, uh, the Israelite people could now start to rebuild their lives to some extent. And... As they did so, they would also be thinking about their relationship with God. And that's what God sent Zechariah to talk to them about. Now, it wasn't as if the good old days were the answer, because past days for ancient Israel, even before the exile, had been full of injustice and sin and hostilities. And actually, in this uh, prophecy of Zechariah, God spoke about his anger at the lack of compassion the oppression of the needy, the injustice that he had seen in those past days. God said that people's hearts had been as hard as flint and their ears had been blocked to anything he said to them. So returning now to their homeland must not mean a return to those old ways, Zachariah said. In chapter 7, when the people said, shall we call fasts like we did before, God said, no, what's, there's no point doing that. It didn't mean anything before. Instead, God said, start living right. Uh, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So that, that's in chapter 7. 
So the return home from exile was actually an opportunity, God said, for a time of change within people's hearts. And that change in heart would bring with it a change in hope. Through Zechariah, God showed them a window into a new future, not just for them, in fact, but actually for the whole world. God gave them a vision and a promise of his salvation. Now, there are glimpses of this promised good future uh, throughout the book of Zechariah, but, but on Palm Sunday, we focus on chapter nine, where God said this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. As the people returned to their homes and to their city, Jerusalem, God was saying that he spoke of, of a king arriving there too at the city. This would be a king who God said would bring great joy to the people, a king who would be good, righteous and trustworthy. He would be a king who would be gentle, a king who would bring salvation. Now, remember, in the 6th century BC, people had seen their fair share of kings and rulers, but none of them really made anyone want to rejoice. They had seen their fair share of rulers, but none of them were gentle or righteous. None of them brought salvation. Far from making things right, they had just messed things up in different ways and caused lots of pain. But God said that he was going to send a saviour, a king who would come to Jerusalem and he would give the people a reason to rejoice. Verse 10 says that this king would end war. He would take away chariots and war horses. He would break the battle bow because it's no longer needed. Remember those things, the chariots, uh, the war horses, the battle bow had caused so much dread to people living at that time. All the other kings that they had ever known had created war. It was how they took and held on to power by killing. But God said that his king would proclaim peace to all the nations. And again, verse 10, his rule would extend from sea to sea. In other words, from one end of the world to the other. Back in the 6th century BC, much of the turmoil of the world at that time that the people had been uh, swept up in was, was really the result of competing rulers fighting for territory and for dominance. But the king that God was going to send wouldn't be part of that equation and that game. He would have no rivals. He would have no disputed territories because God's king would be a king that everyone can believe in, everyone can follow and serve and trust in from one end of the world to the other, no matter what else is going on, no matter who else might be vying for power at the present time around us. Jesus, this king, would be one that the whole world could turn to. He would also be a king of covenant, verse 11 says. A covenant, a relationship based on a commitment and promise towards us. And, and with this king, with God's king, this wouldn't just be empty promises. Lots of people make promises. Lots of leaders make promises that they don't fulfill, but not with this one. You know, this would not just be ink on a page that then gets overwritten a bit later on. God says in verse 11, this is a covenant that is as real as the blood in his veins. 
It would be in sealed on the foundation of the blood of the king. And God said that what that would mean, he said it would mean our freedom and our relief. It would be, he says in verse 11, like prisoners being delivered from a dry, waterless pit. Or verse 12, it will be like prisoners returning to the security of a stronghold. Or like those who've lost everything, suddenly being restored twice as much as they lost. In verse 13, God uses all sorts of picture ro pictures rolled into one. Uh, he pictures himself as a great warrior, winning the day, defeating all injustice and oppression and evil. In all the mess, it's like God will turn up and draw it all to a conclusion and set things right at last. And you've got to imagine what that meant to a people who had been living in captivity because of war, but are now returning home, but no doubt wondering, well, how long for? You know, what's the future going to bring? In verse 14, God speaks very dramatically. He says, imagine thunder and lightning, trumpet blast and storms all rolled into one. In other words, the coming of this king, this new king from God, it would be it would be startling. It would change the world and it would be as definitive as thunder is in our ears or as lightning is when it flashes into our eyes. In verses 15 to 17, God pictures it as a great victory and then as a bowl full of wine and then as an abundance of grain and as life flourishing. In other words, God would bring salvation, he says, like a shepherd saving his sheep, and, and his people would then become like jewels in his crown. You know, that a king wears a crown with jewels to show the success of his reign and his wealth. Well, God says this king, the evidence of his good reign would be us, the people who rejoice that the king has come. God was going to send a saviour and the world was going to be a much better place for it. And, and it was all on the horizon. He, God said to them, behold, your king comes to you. He's coming. And so there they were and they waited with anticipation. 500 years on from that, from Zechariah 9, and we're in John chapter 12 and verse 12. And we're standing outside Jerusalem and this happens. This is John 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So what was happening there? John tells us, Zechariah chapter 9 was happening. Jesus is the king, coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, which means Jesus is the one that God has sent to bring peace instead of war, to bring righteousness instead of injustice, to bring joy instead of sorrow, rest instead of turmoil, celebration instead of grief, and in, in even life instead of death. Now, at first, the disciples did not understand this, it says. It was only later that they realized what this all meant. Now, I don't think that's surprising, really. 
Jesus doesn't look anything like the kind of conquerors that we are used to seeing in the world and talking about. Look at how different Jesus is from our usual kings and rulers. He's riding on a donkey, for starters, which does not exactly exude the idea of power and victory in the world's mind. Donkeys were, a, a, they were symbolic of servitude. They, it's why you had a donkey, to carry your burdens. They were the epitome of serving others. A donkey carried your burdens. It did your hard work for you. Uh, the donkey struggled under the weight so that you didn't have to. And that's exactly why God chose a donkey as the symbol of the king he sent, because that's exactly, of course, what Jesus did for us. He died for us. He took our burdens, our, even our sins, and gave his life. He was nailed to a cross by his enemies, for uh, nailed to the cross for our sins and the sins of the whole world. And, and as he died on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isaiah, of course, told us so clearly um, that he has carried our sins and sorrows and that it was for our iniquities that he was, die was dying so that by his wounds we are healed. Remember what God said, of course, in, in Zechariah, um, in the whole book of Zechariah. He told the Israelites returning home that sin is not just out there, remember, in the others. It's at home in our hearts too, in, in us as well as them, if you like. So if Jesus died for sinners, as we're so often told, then he died for me and for you as well. And in so doing, he broke that endless cycle of sin's power over us through forgiveness and through new life and through his spirit who enables us to follow him. And that means Christ really can change things, not just on the surface for a little bit, but from within our hearts and then out into our lives and then in our communities and in our world. Jesus is unlike any other king. Other kings can patch up some of the outside things. Jesus gives us new hearts and the change he brings is lasting. At the cross, God announces that the world will be changed not by violence or rivalry or hatred or competition or the battle to be first or best. The world will be changed ultimately by the love of Christ, giving himself for us on the cross. And that's why we read actually in the Gospels that Jesus often hid away and withdrew from sort of triumphalist crowds who wanted to force him uh, to be a kind of war-waging king. But Jesus wouldn't have that. He wouldn't do that. Instead, he set his face towards Jerusalem and to the cross, where he would give his life, he said, as a ransom to set many free. And then, of course, he rose again. Death itself, even, had been outdone by Jesus, overcome, overturned, defeated by the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I think like the disciples, our first thought when we saw Jesus, um, you know, riding into Jerusalem, I'm, sh I'm sure we would have thought as we saw that week, that Easter week unfold, just like them, we probably would have thought this does not look or sound very much 
like what Zachariah, for example, was saying. It took the resurrection and the giving of the Spirit of God for them to realize just what this was all about and how this, what Jesus did, is so totally different. It's, it's a different script altogether from the world's kings and the world's empires and the world's notion of power even. But actually, that's why, that is precisely why Jesus can indeed bring all those things that God said he would bring. Because he is not just another empire. He's not just another politician or military machine. He is the son of God. And he goes to the cross to die for us. And then he rises again for us. And so he is indeed the, the world-changing thing that God was talking about back in Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus, the man riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, is the thunder, lightning, trumpet blast, and, and whirlwind of God that Zechariah spoke about. Jesus, this unarmed man of humility and gentleness, is God the champion coming to save the day. This man in sandals with dust all over his feet, on his way to a cross, he is the king whose reign will extend from shore to shore and who, who will make the world rejoice and sing. John tells us, it was only later on, he says, that we understood all of this. We understood that this actually is exactly what God had meant in Zechariah when he told us about the king who would change the world. Jesus dying for us and rising again is what brings a whole new day to our lives and therefore through us to the world as well. It's what brings peace instead of war, joy instead of sorrow, rest and celebration and new life. Jesus washes away all our sin and brings our hearts and lives back to God. It is even, he is even the one who conquers death. So this is what true lasting peace means. This is what really changes the world. And one big reason for that, why it really does work, what Jesus did, is because it begins by changing our hearts. It changes us from our very core outwards. It's just what God, remember, told the returning Israelites that they really needed. It wasn't just about coming home. It was about having a new heart. So as God called those people in the 6th century BC to turn back to him and to see what he would do, he's calling us now today to do the very same, to turn to him and look through, if you like, that open window that he's given us and look into a new light, a new beginning, a new future, one that is lit up by the love of Christ. And the question is, will we become part of that, those great things that God has done for us through his son? They waved palm branches because they were symbols of victory. And they waved them when Jesus arrived. And Jesus does indeed bring the victory that God spoke about through Zechariah. A different kind of victory than what the world is used to, but that's exactly why it's so real and true. This is what happens when God turns up to put things right. 
The lightning that he spoke of is a servant on a donkey. The thunder is his love. The storm is the cross that he carried for us. And the trumpets that he spoke of play the sound of the gospel. Christ is risen. So, as Zachariah said, rejoice, O sons and daughters. Your king has come. Amen.